When we look in the mirror, there are times that we might pause long enough to ask the question, who am I? Identity, invisibility, magic and love are the themes not only of Trent Dalton's work, but of his life. I'm Ali Hill, psychologist and host of Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring what does it take to live boldly amongst the grittiness, the mess and the uncertainty around us. I am beyond excited to bring you this conversation because, well, it's a pretty extraordinary one. One that left me with goosebumps, tears, laughter, joy and a desire to cartwheel into the magic moments that life has in store when we are prepared to see them. Trent Dalton nearly needs no introduction, but here's a few things that you ought to know about him. Trent grew up in Housing Commission in Brackenridge, Brisbane, brought up by his father and older brothers. Trent worked as a journalist and in 2018 published his debut novel, Boy Swallows Universe, which broke all the records and is currently being filmed for a Netflix series. This book and his other books, All Our Shimmering Stars and Love Stories, Trent has sold over 1.2 million copies of his books in Australia alone. In this conversation, we talk about Trent's latest book, Lola in the Mirror, and let me tell you, he has done it again. This book is filled with darkness, it's filled with light, magic, grit, and a little dash into the meaning of life. So where do I start with this conversation? We explore who we are, we chat about love, we chat about enthusiasm, we talk about darkness, light, pulling your head out of your own ass, and so much more. Trent's latest book is extraordinary, so make sure you grab a copy of Lola in the Mirror. Trent is extraordinary, and this conversation is one, well, you may want to revisit again. Please soak up the magic that is Trent Dalton. Trent, it is absolutely a delight to be sitting down with you. And you've just told me that this is your first conversation around your new book. Yeah. So I'm very excited. Oh, uh, Ali, I'm so honoured that you'd have me on. And yeah, it's it's always a really special moment when you begin the process of talking about this thing that's only stayed with you for about a year. It's only been you. It's only been myself and Lola. So it's been really lovely to just, you know, drive on over here and go, yeah, sit down with you and, and start, you know, because it's a real process that I actually do appreciate and I actually really love it because sometimes you can find out why you did anything, why you actually did something. It's like yeah. you sometimes don't even realise why you did something until you talk about it. So it's Well, um, I'm interested to see where we yeah, go and what yeah. we uncover yeah, about yeah. why. Yeah. This new book, Lola in the Mirror, is extraordinary. I just finished the last page this morning and I don't want to give any spoilers away, so I've already warned you to make sure that I don't do that. The main character in this book, she has a love for the meaning of names and we get to learn some of the characters through the meanings of their names. I'm wondering whether you at all researched the meaning of Trent. Your own name. Oh, thanks, Ali, because I want to know you, where you got your name from because <laughs> it's a great point. You're exactly right and it's one of my favourite parts of the book. She's obsessed with names because she's nameless mm. and she's envious of all these people who have these wonderful stories behind their names and it's such a great storytelling place to start as far as who we are. Let's start at the top, you know, story by. You know, and it's like, who are we? You know, it's mm. like, it's a good place to start. My dear late dad, Noel, was a massive reader. Like, in he's all through Boy Swallows Universe, actually, this sort of avatar guy, Robert Bell, I created. What was very true about that character is that dad had these mountains of paperback books and 
and maybe a quarter of those books were westerns in real life and and he just sort of stayed in his room reading and smoking durries and and he named his four sons after cowboys so i'm named after a cowboy in one of these sort of serial westerns that he picked up and he said to my mum like this name Trent, I think he's one of these cowboys that I've read, you know, would be good. <laughs> We're already sort of cowboy related, the Dalton boys, because there's the Dalton gang in America is a famous sort of wow. outlaw, outlaw gang. Yeah, so, right. so there's a real Western type vibe to the Daltons. But the name Trent is just from the River Trent in Great Britain. But it sort of means torrent, like torrent, which I've found is kind of cool. Like that's the bit I like about my name, torrent, because there's something that speaks to just flowing pretty fast, you know, and it sort of feels like. I don't know. I like to be like that a little bit sometimes, you know, like I like the part of me that is really trying to be enthusiastic and trying to go hard at things and trying to just go intensely, you know, and well, I also hate that about myself, but yeah, it's that part of my name that I really hook onto when I think about the name Trent, which is a pretty boring kind of <laughs> name and it doesn't not even with, get... Not the way you just painted it, oh, it's cool, the cowboy. Cool. <laughs> cowboy thing's not bad. Cowboy Torrance. What about Ali? What are, are you the, the full Alison? Alison with one that, L, yeah. Scottish kind of background. I think my mum had a favourite aunt that was an Alison. Not that I ever got to meet her, but that was that kind of connection. Oh, this uh, is what comes up in the book also, our nameless hero of the book. She always gets told. It's like, no, there's no special meaning. Mm-hmm. No, but the special meaning is like it's my late uncle. It's my yeah. aunt. It's like, and so that she always says like, yeah, it often comes back to family. And it's like I love that about our names, you know. But there's this beautiful name in my wife's family, Lenora, and it's like it just flows through the family. And it's mm-hmm. like I love that. There are all these women who have carried this beautiful name and and it's like I love those sort of stories too where we build significance into a name and I sort of talk about that all the time. It's like anything can become meaningful if you Mm. give it love or you choose to give it the meaning that you feel it needs. And it's like I did that in Boy Swallows Universe with the blue wren. It's like your end is a dead blue wren. So the kid through the whole book – He's heard this kind of mantra, so he's like waiting to see a blue wren because the first time he sees a blue wren, it's going to be the end. Exactly. It's going to be incredibly significant. So, yeah. yeah, Brilliant. The meaning and and things that kind of attach to it. And I love like even that sense of a river. You know, when I was looking at it, it was kind of this traveler through. How does being a writer and being a traveler through connect, do you think? Oh, man, that's so true, actually, when I really think about it. Like, I am a, a conduit. That's all I am sometimes. Like I feel I I flow through really incredible moments and important things. I certainly did that as a journalist for like, and I'm still a journal. That's my trade for 23 years. I I stop off on my little river and it it goes past people's lives. And it really is that I spent my whole lifetime going into people's living rooms and, you know, sitting down on a couch and going, hey, do you mind for the next four hours telling me every deepest, darkest secret that you – keep just under that Mm. chest and would you trust me with that to write a 4,000 word magazine feature in the best possible way I can and and then the river flows on next week, you know, and it's a really strange thing to be like that and it's so funny that you just even mentioned that, that like it's kind of is like my life and the important thing is to know when you got to sort of stop the river. So it's sort Mm. of like, um, you know, I've got three very important people in my life, which is my wife and my two daughters and it's like, 
don't be the river for those guys, you know, be the land, you know, and it's like, sorry for the metaphors, but it's like, but it's really <laughs> yeah. true. It's so true. And it's like, it's something that I'm always working on. The torrent can ease for a little while. Ease the torrent, right? Yeah. And and it's something my wife's always saying. She's just like, slow down, slow down, you know, and be present, like sort of, um, yeah, be here for us three. And it's sort of, so that's sort of something, the side of the name Trent that I need to really check in on sometimes. Yeah. I'd love to go back to a bit of background. Boy Swallows Universe mm. is semi-autobiographical. Mm. Mm. What did growing up in Brackenridge inform who you are? Oh, Ali, that's a beautiful question. I lo- I hear the words Brackenridge and I hear them like Camelot. I hear, I hear them like you would have said Paris, France, you know. That place is so – I drove through there recently with my brother Jesse. We are going to mum's house to drop off a pot plant and my mum lives over on the other side of the Hornigbrook Bridge. Mm. And to get there, you drive through your hometown, like your home suburb, and, and we lived in this little shitbox housing commission red brick home raised by my dad and my, my three older brothers and I. We were there for like – you know, 12 years and um, every night you're seeing every social issue that the city of Brisbane was facing in the late 80s and, and 90s and, uh, you know, it was it was the place where I did become a journalist and a watcher and I would, for example, just dad would go, hey, go down and get me a packet of cigarettes and you'd walk down this street called McKeering Street which was just off Cram, down to the Barrett Street shops and this is just going down to the local food store to get some durries for dad. But along that way, in summer in Brackenridge, an incredibly hot suburb for whatever reason, just being hot in Brisbane, everyone had these housing commission wide front windows and they always had them open. Mm. And so their living rooms became like theatre stages. And I remember, I remember being 12 years old and just stopping out the front and like dead set in darkness, their lights on so you can see everything yeah. about them. No one can see me. And I just remember stopping behind telephone poles and just spying on families and just watching them have like, you know, horrendous fights or watching them cry or watching a boy lose his mind and just going like, wow, I wonder what's going on in that family. And wow, I wonder if that family's got the same shit as the Dalton family. And, uh, and that's where I think I genuinely became a writer. Like, like that stuff that stuff seeds thoughts in your mind about I, I want to one day maybe say something about this place, you know. And so that place is absolute. oh, man, Ali, I did this incredible thing. Like this is literally like two weeks ago, the school that I went to where like there was a lot of stuff in my school, Brackenridge High, mm. it used to be called Nashville High. There was a lot of stuff going on about where kids are coming from to go into the maths class, like where we were all coming from and what we were dealing with the night before going into that classroom and – I learned a lot about the stuff that I would write about later as a journo, let alone a, a, a novelist, inside that school. And I got invited back by the school for this really, really remarkable evening where they were like going, uh, it was like a fundraising thing for Brackenridge High, but they just sort of went back through my high school life and wow. it was a really big special occasion and like 400 people turned up and it was the most profoundly beautiful thing because they were all talking about Boy Swallows Universe because the thing's going to be turned into a Netflix show and Brackenridge, this beautiful home <laughs> suburb, is going to be put on the screen to like dead set, like it's going to like 150 <laughs> territories across the world, which is just remarkable to me. But I got to sort of thank them. I remember this teacher, Mr. Gents, who was my old English teacher, he was the guy on stage and he goes, um, Trent, you know, what do you remember? And I just said, Mr. Gents, I remember everything. I remember every last thing and it did. It was just sort of going back to that place and 
So I drive through Brackenridge and I walk through the Brackenridge High Halls and then everything comes back, the good and the bad. So, you you know, the holes in the fibro walls, mm. the um, the blood on the walls, the beer bottles, the smell of the beer on the, on the ground, but also my first kiss or also, uh, you know, just swimming with the people you love or riding bikes with the people you love and, and that all floods back too. So... In answer to your question, like Brackenridge is just kind of everything. And I think I'll be writing about that place for as long as I live without even necessarily writing about it, if that makes sense. So, you know, what I did, I got a job on the Courier-Mail and I just started writing about all those things I wanted to unpack, you know, I wanted to work out and I suddenly found a job where I got paid to explore the stuff that was in my head and that was in my 12-year-old head. Mm. And so that's a real privilege to do that at the age of 24, you know. I can imagine, you know, as that kid who's leaning up against the the telegraph poles watching these essentially mime TVs <laughs> through these these windows. That's exactly. a beautiful and, way of putting uh, what they were, yeah. Yeah, and that life for all of us, right, can go down a whole range of different pathways. Was journalism always the pathway or was there other things on, on the cards for you? No, no, and there was no pathway. I'm, I'm going to be flatly mm. honest, like you just – you're in one of those sort of areas, you just don't see it. You're, you're just not seeing it. I mean, it's at the heart of Lola in the mirror. That's what I'm getting at when the kid in the book constantly looks in the mirror and she's trying to find versions of a life. It's essentially she keeps seeing this girl and, you know, I won't reveal who that girl is, but it could well be a really amazing version of her that she wants to be this kid, right? And I just remember being in that sort of Brackenridge, this room I shared with my brother Jesse. Dad got us this um, lifeline. We got all our furniture from Lifeline. And so all our furniture was like really odd. And like, so I remember having this very feminine, ornate, like chest of drawers with this. And it's inspired the mirror that's in Lola in the Mirror that this girl finds in a council pickup. It's very much inspired by the mirror of my brother Jesse and I had in our bedroom. This incredibly ornate, it liked it belonged to someone from Gone with the Wind or something. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it had this ornate mirror sort of thing with all not these. Not quite the cowboy kind of mirror. Not quite, very much not a cowboy mirror. Like and, and two boys who were trying to be tough. Like it was very much, the, you know, a really feminine kind of beautiful, you know, chest of drawers with mirror. But I just remember like looking into that mirror for example, at the age of 12 and seeing really hopeful things like versions of myself that could be a footballer or could be a bloody movie director because I love films and and maybe could be a writer. And then by the time you hit 16, right, you stop seeing those versions of yourself. It's very strange. It was a very strange thing that started happening where reality or you just age and you start becoming more intelligent and therefore more privy to how shit things are actually around you. And I just remember going, this is really sad. Like, this is really sad and and not seeing much future at all. And I genuinely thought all my friends and I went to this, like it was just this road where you would sort of graduate. You probably wouldn't have done that well and you would just navigate your way to Kingsford Smith Drive where all the factories were and you might get a job there and you might still have a pretty fun life, you know, just doing bets down at the Brackenridge Tavern and you'd have a wife and maybe you'd be lucky and that's a beautiful life. Like that's a beautiful – and that's great, right? I'm no – and I just felt like there was this sort of – I call it this invisible wall. I feel Mm -hmm. like sometimes when you're in those fringe areas of a major city, you feel – you know, and this is – I've spoken about this to like kids at Logan and stuff now, which is sort of – you look at these sort of areas of Brisbane and, you know, I'll go out to schools in Logan, they remind me of what Brackenridge felt like in the early 90s and I and they, they speak of it as well, this sort of 
invisible wall where you feel like there are parts of the world that aren't available to you and that they don't belong to you, you know? And, and so just a series of sort of minor miracles happen where I start to go, oh, hang on. No, I, I can get that. And I needed people to tell me. And so, you know, I, I was lucky enough to get in a few uni sort of courses where like literally a great Brisbane writer, Chris Olson, who was my tutor at the time, like literally slapping me with a cold fish and going, hey, this belongs to you as well. And that's very, it was very powerful. And What do you think he saw? Oh, she, 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 she so, like, yeah, no, no, that's yeah. right. Yeah, Christi- sorry, I should have said Names. her full name, Christina <laughs> no. Olsen. And uh, yeah. I think she saw a voice. I think she saw a voice. Mm. She, she heard a voice, you know what I mean? And it was a voice of Brackenridge. And she's like, well, that's different to all the other kids here, you know? And mm. so... So I think she genuinely was like, man, don't don't waste that voice. And, and this voice is just as important as a voice coming from New York or, or Sydney or Melbourne. And that was very powerful. Like that was really meaningful to me. And, and then from there, there was a series of women who Chris Olsen put me onto Judith Ann Garasimov at this paper called the Brisbane News. Judith Ann was like, I like the way your voice sounded in that piece. Judith Ann leads to Christine Midapp at the Courier Mail and – and off it goes, you know. So I've got the I've got like three women who heard that voice, honestly, in my life, and they're like, I'll treasure them for the rest of my life because they they were the ones to go, hey, this does belong to you. Mm. Yeah. Extraordinary. One of the themes in this book, but also in in your writing, has been, as you describe, making the invisible visible. Oh wow. The parts of society that we don't want to know about, talk about, mm. that we kind of hide away and bring them to the forefront. And in your writing, I'm, I have no doubt that there are people who feel invisible, that feel seen through that writing. Oh, thanks, Alan. How does yeah. that come to pass or what does that mean for you for, for some of these stories that, you know, maybe aren't necessarily told anywhere else? I, lo- I love that you tap into that, Ali. Like I just I'm really touched that if having read it that that's a theme coming through, the girl in Lola she's kind of feeling so invisible to the point where she she feels so unseen that the point where she's like, I might actually have the powers of invisibility. And mm. that comes with great bonuses, but of course it has, it comes with great burdens as well. And it's kind of a cool thing to the point where she starts screaming in the street, like, I am invisible. I am invisible. And no one even notices, you know, and it's like, well, damn it, I must be. And it's like, I thought that was a really beautiful thought for a young 17 year old girl to think at that time, because it's like, yeah, it might feel like that sometimes. And certainly possibly is sort of getting to what I was sort of talking about, like about sometimes how you feel and how I felt looking in the mirror at 16, where it's just like, I'm just not even there, mate. Like, I'm just Mm -hmm. not even like, and to the point where I I hated what I was seeing so much, I'd pull this, I had this American baseball cap and I'd just pull it over my head. And I talk about that all the time where we talk, you know, a lot of our cities in Australia are going through these youth crime issues. And it's like, you know, a very highfalutin way of of solving that problem is to solve what those largely boys are seeing in the mirror. Because right now they're not liking what they're seeing in the mirror. And right now they're actually not even seeing anything because they're not even looking. And so, yeah, I, I think subconsciously I'm working with the invisible and I have done for 23 years. Like every story I, I ever wrote in magazines was always going to the fringes of little areas um, not being looked at and going, um, can you please let me sort of through your voice sort of shine a light on this thing, whatever it would be. And and early on it, well, you know, I, I just remember in like as far back as like 2006, like I had this stuff in my head about like 
massive domestic violence issues of things that, you know, I'd just seen in the houses I grew up in and shit my mum had gone through and with this particular monster that she kind of later met later in life. And I wanted to talk about that invisible problem and it really led to a lot of stuff and then people go right into you and go, um, hey, I just want to thank you so much for making that thing visible because that's ruined my life, that invisible mm. thing. And I'm so glad you were talking about it. And so then you put that, you make that stuff visible in a book like Boy Swallow's Universe and and here's this thing. So I've got a, um, a kid's like the meaning of my life. I got this letter from this kid in South Korea and Ali, I swear to God, and I, I sort of cling to this thing as kind of a beacon of like, this is why you're doing it. You know, this is why I'm talking to you. Like everything, everything. Let that be, you know, and let this be the beacon. And this kid, he's like 14 and he goes, um, I have no idea where Dara or Brackenridge, these suburbs that are in Boy Swallows Universe, I have no idea where these places are in the world. But I just want you to know that I read the South Korean translation of Boy Swallows Universe and I have decided to live to adulthood. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's just like, man, like it was just like, all right, all right. You know, just by mm. making something that he sees visible, you know, and, and going, hey, man, like I'm I'm over across oceans. But, you know, yeah, we're all sort of seeing life the same way and, and it's really nice to make visible. Well, it's really nice in a in a, in someone else's writing when you when you see things that you know you feel like the world isn't isn't seeing, and and it's really nice to maybe feel like a writer or someone is seeing those things as well, and like that's the power of that incredibly intimate thing. So mm. I'm somehow connecting to that kid, you know, in this incredibly intimate moment where he's got a book pressed to his sort of only about twenty centimeters away from his mm. nose, you know, and it's like it becomes one to one, one to one, mate, as close as this, Ali, like yeah. it's as close as this, you know, mm. and, and it's really beautiful. So, yeah, so all of that has been incredibly powerful to me. This sort of illuminating the invisible has been very, very much mm. like it's sort of what I'm chasing. And, and you know, in this case I went full tilt into what I feel is, you know, the biggest invisible issue, you know, the 120,000 people sleeping rough tonight. Like that's just a, literally the invisible people who, you know, in daytime our homeless in our country – do become invisible. They try to remove themselves actively from the streets and they do. They, they go into shelters and they, they sleep in the day beds, you know, during the day and they'll return at night. And, you know, so it's sort of, it's just such a metaphor for invisibility. And it was like, it, I wanted to play with that in the book a bit. And yeah, I'm just really proud of trying to sort of write about invisible social issues, but trying to also package it up in something that people might actually go, yeah, I want to read this all the way to the end because it's got crime and mystery and, and adventure and action and love, like it's ultimately a love story. And so but that's all just Dickens and Steinbeck and Shakespeare, <laughs> that stuff, like just learning from those amazing writers and going, yeah, you can write about the world around you mm. and make those things visible. Just the same way Shakespeare made all those issues visible, you know, but always remember to tell a good yarn, you know, in the middle of it. Yeah. Have the characters along the way. Totally, yeah. For, yeah. Your, for yourself, going from that 16-year-old with the trucker cap down to Boy Swallows Universe broke every record of a, <laughs> of a novel yeah. hitting the shelves. What was that experience like of having this story, not only to write it but to have it, yeah, break records. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was, um, you know, it was, and I can look back now and I, I think about the fear, Ali, like I mm. think about just the fear and I really get, feel really good about just 
breaking through the fear of it because I carried that story around. Like, Ali, I did terrible things when I was a boy in terms of that story where um, I didn't proudly say that my mum had been through some serious shit, like that my mum had been through. So a blip on the radar of my mum's extraordinary life was the fact that she spent two years in the Brisbane Bogo Road women's prison, right? And I would like people go, hey, man, where's your mum like at school and stuff? Like why is your mum not at tuck shop or whatever, right? And I'd, I'd make up stories about where she was and I feel so ashamed of that because I should have just gone, she's currently going through this really interesting period in her life, but you wait, man, she's going to be the most amazing grandma and she's going to just come out of this period, you know, of course you don't know this when you're 14 or whatever or, or let alone 10, you know. And then so what happens is is you just carry that story and you shove that period of your life where you're like, you know, you're worried about your mum on Christmas Day, how she's feeling because you know how much she freaking love Christmas. And, and so you write this book about this boy who does all the things that you never got to do, such as, you know, bust into Bogo Road Women's Prison on Christmas Day to see your mum, mm. you know, and it's sort of like... I'm just so glad that I did that, you know, and I just, I just, I'm just really glad because it was all terrifying. It was the whole process was terrifying. The bit that was terrifying too was speaking about it, you know what I mean? Like inevitably someone would go, where does this book come from? And then inevitably you'd have to face the fact of, am I going to tell the truth or am I going to bullshit around it like I used to do when I was a kid, you know? And I get very proud of the fact that I sort of managed to skirt around it in a way that still paid great respect to mum and that she's the proudest person about that book, Ali. Mm. Like she, what does she see in it? She will talk about that book and go, um, Trent, I won. I won. And it's like I raised the boy who wrote Boy Swallows Universe. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I'm getting – it's true, Ali. Like yeah. it's true. It's just like it's the most beautiful thing, you know, and it's very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable for her. Like she – this really great job. She's now retired, but this is like five years ago. She has to go into a boss and go, um, look, in the 80s, I sort of, I was really in love with this really successful heroin dealer, real wild times. Um, and my my youngest son's written a book inspired by that period, you know. You and might that, learn some things about me. You might learn some things about me. So like this book's going to come out, yeah. look, maybe no one's going to read it. You know You know what I mean? Like, like it's just yeah. so funny, that period. And yeah. uh and for her to swallow that, like that whole book's about swallow it down. It's like for her, what she did for me, Ali, what she did, right, was that she could not give me anything, like not give us boys much, like just didn't have the means to in that period. And that woman gave me the greatest thing she could ever give me and she gave it to me at the age of I was 38 and she gave me a story. Like I showed her that book before it was all, you know, I was like, mm. Mom, hey, <laughs> This is a bit, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know, you know, um, I wish you raised a carpenter, you raised a writer. And uh, if I was a carpenter, I could have built you a cupboard, but I'm a writer and I wrote you a book and, like, can you please read it? And if you are uncomfortable with it, it goes in the drawer, it goes in the third drawer down and let it stay there, you know. And I did the same with my brothers, like, guys, mm. please read this. Anyone's got a problem, it'll go in the drawer. And those beautiful boys and my beautiful mum all came back and went, that's going to be incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> I kind of, uh, yeah, I'm dreading, you know, all of this, but we're so proud of you, mate. You know, go for it. And and it's sort of because they know, you know, like like I need it whatever for whatever reason. Like that's just my way, you know. That's my way of processing all that shit and better that than through bourbon, you know, and it's like cool. But it, but it, it's 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 mum's journey through it all that that gives me the meaning of it because she's the one who keeps coming back to me and just goes, 
Trent, still people come up to me and say, you know, thank you because that's me. I was that mum as well. And there were so many mums, right, mm. Ali? We mm. know so many Australian mums who were that mum, you know, the mum who's just up against it and <laughs> just dealing with shit. Like I I wanted to write a story about that and I've done it again in Lola. Like it's I just I am profoundly moved by these mums who are they're sitting in DV shelters as we speak, mm. Ali, and just want to write about them who just carry on. And they just, man, I'm, they're in they're in cars at Musgrave Park as we speak, you know, and they're doing math sums tonight, helping their kid with their maths assignment. You know what I'm just like, yeah. hell yeah. And that was my mum. My mum went through a lot of shit and Boyce Waller's universe is like 5% of what she went through and, and it was sort of like, yeah. So it, it's the just. The unsung heroes, the courage of it and the. Gosh, that statement of I won is extraordinary. Oh, like that is that, that. That, 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 those two, <laughs> we watched, they did a play. What happened was they did a play of Boy Swallow's Universe here in QPAC and it was really beautiful and mum went to the opening night and and we came back and, yeah, that those two words were like after, like we were just processing the whole thing and it was midnight and we're having a beer over at the kitchen bench and like everyone's gone to bed and it's like, so, you know, what's going through your head and that's what she goes, just two words, like I won. It was the most profound, like mm. it gives me chills, like it gets me, mm. gets me highly emotional just thinking about it because that's such a beautiful thing to say to well, me. Well, every you know. mum connects to that. Right. Um, the invisible ones, the visible ones. Yeah. Have you, you got, you got. Two kids. Oh. Yeah, yeah. 16 and nearly 14. So they're, oh mm. man. They're, that's, that's, they're, that's, they're that's my daughter's ages. That's smack bang my daughter's <laughs> wow. ages, you know, and, and mm. you know, right? You mm. know what they're, you know how complex they are and you know, I would be so proud if, if at 38, my eldest daughter, Beth, just decides to write some epic <laughs> book about us I'd, and I don't think I could say two better words to her than mm. I won because I raised Beth Dalton. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, uh, and I just think mum knew that. I think mum knew to tell me that. Like it was just like the, I could not have heard two better words. Anyway, sorry, don't the, get me started. The dreams so. that she probably had at the time and, you know, the thread of all of your writing that speaks and I think connects so well to the readers is love. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and you wrote a book called Love Stories. Yeah. What led you to sit on that corner of Adelaide and Albert Street and gather those stories? Oh, it's, that's a great question. I was, I was, I've got this really, really dear friend named Greg Kelly. He's, you know, just he's one of those people, and we all should have these people. He texts me on, like, seriously, he'll text me around the time my dad died, like, you know, just go, hey man, thinking about your old man. Mm. Like that, that gets me so that whole mum stuff's got me into this highly emotional state, Ali. So I'm sort yep. of now now I'm thinking about him. I'm very, very moved about my dear I friend. I tell you I'm a psychologist, so this is totally fine. Yeah, like, damn it. Is this what teach you, you somewhere? Yeah, no, 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 this is this is wonderful. No, but so Greg's mum is named Kath Kelly, and she passed away on Christmas Day 2020 in the sort of just before the peak of COVID and the madness of COVID and and on the hospital bed, she was she was rushed to hospital at the hospital at, at the RBH. She gave Greg all these instructions, and and we found this out at 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 Kath's incredibly beautiful and moving funeral. One of those funerals where you see the full scope of a life, where you see you know those you know you mm. see those video. You, the phenomenon of the video montage at funerals has only sort of started in the past twenty years, but I think it's the most devastatingly beautiful thing to see where you. You watch a life of any, you know, anyone who's lived about 80 or 90, you actually see the incredible black and white shots and they go right through to the 70s grain to the the sort of 
90s kind of digital age and then to the iPhone era mm. and you see the full scope of a life. And I remember distinctly I was with my wife and my eldest daughter. We were in that funeral because my eldest daughter's best friends with Greg Kelly's daughter. And so we're in there and we're looking around and you just could not get a seat at this funeral. You could not get a seat. And uh, I was like, damn it, Kath, you did it. You did it right. Lead a life so rich and so giving and so full of love that latecomers will not find a seat at your funeral. And uh, we go outside and um, we're all just having, as per Kath's wishes, in the hospital bed at the RBH to her son, you got to all drink these Forex gold cans that I left in the fridge when the ambulance rushed me to the, I've got like, I've got like 40 gold cans in the, yeah, yeah like <laughs> the most quintessential yep. Brisbane funeral, right? <laughs> like baking heat. Yeah. It was like high summer, January 6th, you know, like high God, summer. God, they would have tasted good. <laughs> they were amazing. They were amazing, Ali. They were amazing. And you know when like beer tastes so good with grief, like it goes so well with grief because you just, just like talking and you just like, and I remember, and I'm there with Kelly's, like Greg's nickname's Kel, and I'm like, I just quietly go to Kel, hey, um, man, just I wanted to have a little moment, just go, hey, this woman, Kath, right, Ali, she would type me these letters, right, on this Olivetti typewriter she had. And this typewriter was her best friend. She was like me. She had she loved words, right? And she she would write me these letters when I was working at the Korea Mail and back when, and was working for the Weekend Oz Mag. She'd just write these beautiful typed letters, just saying, "Keep going, like keep going deeper, Trent, because you're close. You're close to saying something important. You know, I know, I know you've got something in you." And it's like I said to Kel, like I was like, "Man, I think it's no, it would be no stretch at all to say she totally." gave me the confidence to just go a bit further into books like Boy Swallow's Universe. Mm. And I just want to thank you so much, man. And he goes, that's all right, Trance. Wait till you see this. He leans back into his Subaru where the beers were, right? He had this Subaru Forester. He opens the back door and then he pulls out this sky blue 1970s Olivetti typewriter and he goes, mum wants you to have it. <laughs> it was like she wanted the typewriter to go to Trent. And it was the most amazingly moving thing, Ali. Like I was just like... We were just like all in tears and I'm going, what the fuck? Like, dude, are you serious? And um, and then two months later I was just like it was sort of in COVID and we'd just come out of a lockdown and I just wanted to do something completely unrelated to me, you know what I mean? Like and it was all part of the Boy Swallows universe journey. Even my second book, All Ashramming Skies, is very much that. that. That is actually one big cloaked tribute to my dear dead dad. And, you know, so it was like dealing with very personal things and just I wanted to get out of here in my brain mm -hmm. and and get out again to journalism where, where it's like it's something so powerful to just go out and devote your ears to someone else. It's like what you do, Ali. It's mm. like what you do beautifully in this podcast. It's like that's such a wonderful, kind thing to do. And I was just like, I just want to do that for two months. And I phoned up Cal and said, ma'am, do you think Kath would mind if I took the Olivetti out to one of Brisbane's busiest corners, the corner of Albert and Adelaide Street? And, and I had this dorky notion of just doing a sign that said, sentimental writer collecting love stories, do you have one to share? But the reason for it deeply, though, is only sort of really come to light through chats between my wife Fiona and I, and the truth of it is, is like I think I'd forgotten the one love story that is the most important to me, right, in all of my Boy Swallows Universe stuff and going around talking and it was got wild, Ali. Like that book got mm. really went wild. It was just all unexpected and you get swept up in that a bit. And Were there costs along the way in that? That's right. Like 
that's the cost. The cost mm-hmm. is is that you get lost up your own asshole for a bit, and uh, that's the cost. Like it really is. And the best way to retrieve your head from your own ass is to just go talk to people again and put yourself in the like. It's an incredibly vulnerable spot to sit out in a public space as people are coming past, going, "Oh, you want a love story? How about I bury your head in fucking concrete, mate?" I'm like, or um, or someone who comes past and goes. What are you selling? Solar heating and, and or whatever. And you're just like, but you're just out there and you're just open and you're just going, yeah, hit me with it. You know, hit me with your life. And then and then along the way, like the really cool thing was I'd have I'd have people come up to me and say these things, such as, you know, a 60-year-old fellow who's been with his wife for, you know, 40 years. And he goes, um, hey Trent, do you ever do this with your wife? I do it at least once a week. Ask her this question. How can I be a better husband for you? I'm like, holy shit, I've in 23 years, I have never asked my wife such a selfless, thoughtful question. Mm. It is entirely about her, you know what I mean? And about me fixing my shit to be a better husband for her. And uh, and then I'm telling you, like 200 people came past Ali and sat down and just told me how to be a better lover, you know, a bit of, like a lover as in a someone who loves, you know. Mm. And, and so we realise that now, like... It genuinely helped me. I think I was genuinely trying to do something where uh, unconsciously trying to, you know, I call it, you know, in the words of Eddie Vedder, like thumbing my way back to heaven, like trying to trying to go the long route, you know, and, and do it earnestly and, and trying to really be my version of being sort of present and kind of working out my shit and kind of hopefully be a better husband for Fiona. And it was really cool because that the coolest part about that book is, you know, of course, when I come to the realisation like an idiot, I asked 200 people to tell me what love is and neglected to ask my wife. And the best part of the book is when she answers, you know, and the whole the whole book ends with the best, like genuinely the best written part, the best chapter is Fiona. And she just writes the most amazing kind of typed letter, you know, Olivetti letter on Kath's typewriter, just going, Trance, stop, you know, essentially her message is stop, you know. Like we know what it is. We know it every day and, uh, you know, you have it in spades. You just have to turn left like I'm right here. Mm. And it's just like the coolest thing. And uh, and that, funnily enough, it's Fiona's letter that everyone posts on Instagram and stuff. <laughs> I get so proud. Like, I just get so proud and I'll, I'll run to her with the phone and just go, hey, look, someone's – another person's posted. They want to put it on a tea towel and stuff, these beautiful <laughs> things. And it just came out of me. Like she just had so much to say, you know, and I was like – I was so proud of her in that moment. And so, yeah, so, so I'm so sorry, Ali, for the long answers, but it's like mm. there's so much to say about that. It's such a beautiful question because, you know, this is like what time does. Yeah. This is the cool thing about time and it's always time's always in my books. It's like, yeah, you don't know why you're doing something and time will tell you that and, and time really told me that in a big way. And, you know, and Fee and I went, you know, we've been through heaps of shit, like ups and downs and just, you know, normal, really deep, good, strong, tough marriage shit and I think Love Stories had a small part to play in it, but the bigger thing now, it helped us just really just open that shit up and just like really own it for what it is and realise that all of that stuff that goes into any long-term relationship doesn't have to be a marriage or anything, whatever. Any long-term relationship has all this wondrous shit in it. And I mean like the dirty, tough stuff, you know, and the mud, you know, as well as the snow. And so it really helped us embrace the mud and just go, isn't that amazing, all that stuff? All that stuff is all part of it. And, yeah, right at now as we speak, like, you know, I've just never loved her more and it's all because of that. 
yeah, it's it's just. I a think bit. it's the it's the willingness to sit in the question, right? Like the which is what you did sitting on that corner, and that book is extraordinary because they're not all about relationship love. Like there's a one of somebody who loves their pajamas, and like it's yeah. just so such an oh. extraordinary kind of pathway. Are there, and whether it's that question that you heard, like are there kind of rhythms or practical things that you've invested in, whether it's your marriage with Fiona or yeah. into love that oh. has stayed with you? Uh, the, the thing that stays with me is we're all searching for this sort of, you know, I have this sort of, I don't know where it comes from, Ali, I have this mm. ambition in me and I think it's partly to do with some of that stuff where Brackenridge I was telling you about and I learned in that experience that honestly the most successful people among us are, I believe, the Australian mum who's about 75 now and she's been through so much shit. She's seen so much, right, and she's gotten her kids, she's raised some kids, she now is perhaps a, a incredibly doting grandmother and her finest hour, her happiest moment isn't some accolade or some some notch on the on the belt. It's not something in her resume. It's actually like 12 people under a pergola and there's a pavlova in the centre of the table and she might do a little speech and she might just start crying a little bit as she's cutting the pavlova because she's slightly overwhelmed by the love. All she wants is those 12 people. And like, yeah, it's that's sort of where I'm at now. Like mm. that, that is where I'm at. It's it's not about this stuff. It like it like that helps me do the thing. Like I think without these books and all that, I'd I'd be pretty, I'd just be miserable. I think you know. But but what it's about is those people. I don't know. They sit down and write a hundred Christmas cards and they send them out year on year. Out. <laughs> I have this friend named Amanda Watt. I hope she's listening. Journo buddy. I am so shit at writing cards back to Amanda Watt and she has not stopped giving me a Christmas yeah. card regardless, Ali. Like yeah. she just keeps them coming and yep. she updates me on her beautiful kids and a wonderful husband and it's the treasured thing every Christmas now. It's become sacred, mm. the Amanda Watt Christmas card <laughs> and, she, and she gets some lame text on January twenty. Thanking her for the Christmas card from Trent Dalton. <laughs> thing is, she didn't expect anything, Ali. You know, yeah. anyway. I, just I think, think it's not a gift the, of love. When they are the people, what comes to mind, we've had an extraordinary gift of a friend of ours who sadly passed away two years ago, a similar kind of age. His name, you know, AK, he was known as, or Anthony, but he had this gift of friendship. And one of the things I take away from him is he just kept asking. He kept, do you want to come away? Do you want to come for a beer? Do you want to come? And even if the answer was no, I'm busy, he just kept asking. Oh, you're giving me chills. It was extraordinary. Just, just kept asking. Those friends who like. Yeah. Uh, it, it Like this is no indictment on our friendship if you say no. You know what I mean? Because I'm like, going to keep, keep asking. Because I'm a, I'm a friend of yours. Yeah. We're friends. Yeah. Oh, man, that's yeah. so beautiful. And AK. Then, yeah, wow. it's just this gift and this this reminder that even if people are busy and they are and life yeah. turns up, the yep. Amanda Watts of the world who just keeps sending. That's beautiful. <laughs> it's not it's about beautiful. what happens, like, is it? No, no, and she gets it. She gets it. And Kath Kelly got it. You know, that's the thing mm. about love stories. Like she fully understood. And I and the the thing, the beautiful thing about that love stories book is so many people have written to me and just going, "Here's how I knew Kath Kelly. Here's the love I have for her." Like. I was just a neighbour who would pass her as she's watering the plants and we would stop and talk for hours about stuff with cat. You know, that's that beautiful thing. And so they're the other, the really big takeaways that I'm currently, like as we speak, just trying to be better at, like to be a better friend, to be a bit more like AK and mm. kind of, you know, hey, 
I am actually really actively treasuring you. I really value, and I'm I'm at that age. I'm 44 now, and I've got friends now that I went to school with, you know, and those friendships are just so valuable to me because it just went through the whole journey together. And and it's like I get very sentimental when I catch up with those people, and I just go, man, I'm so proud of you. Like you're just this amazing dad, and. You know, and like we're all just doing it because you know what that all feels like and you just, yeah, so it's it's that stuff that I'm trying to be better. I think I got lost a bit chasing that ambition thing in me, you know, and, and the balance wasn't right. And and so that's the big thing that Love Stories taught me is is that the most successful people on the planet are the ones who, who have carved out, you know, they're the ones who they're not going to find seats at, at the funeral, you know. Mm. It's going to be packed houses for them, you know. I've heard you talk about the importance of enthusiasm. Whatever you are doing, you do it with enthusiasm. Mm, mm. How do you tap into enthusiasm in those moments when you can't find or it feels hard or the pressure oh. feels really high? Oh. What do you do? Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Very last thing you said, when the pressure feels high, like that's when I, I do start to actually lose my enthusiasm. I mm. do, and I've 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 actually seen that in the in some people I love dearly. I've seen that in, and uh, and I'm like, yeah, wow, that's what can happen. And so I tell every young kid I'm talking to about writing to not just be enthusiastic about the things you write, but just like please be enthusiastic about the Beatles song on the radio. And be enthusiastic about the banana bread you're eating. And please be enthusiastic about the blue bird that is flying through the sky because that shit is wondrous. Like that miracle of just daily life and and reducing, you know, everyone goes, oh, Trent, you're such a, um, you know, I delve into magical realism sometimes in my books. And it's like it's not magic or real. It's That's life to me. Like that's mm-hmm. that's just a way of seeing the world. Like I remember... There would be times in my life, Ali, where there's blood on the ground and there's holes in the walls and I'm looking at a rainbow, you know, mm. and going, that's the most fucking beautiful thing and this is the most magical moment of my life. And because, you know, and, and like there is such a power in that, like to actively find your internal magic is what you're looking for. And, and the only way you can do that is by being enthusiastic about the world and However, yeah, like sometimes the pressure gets too much and then, you know, I call it in Lola, the whole thing is all about I dedicate the whole book. You know, the whole book's dedicated to this thing. I was just like to anyone who didn't jump in the river and mm. to anyone who did. And and the big thing about that and any river metaphors for that is just the weight, you know, like for anyone who gave in to the weight, I'm like I just get that now at 44 and I totally get that and I really tried to stress that in something as enthusiastic and as cheesy as love stories. It was like I really try and tell people, no, that book's actually quite dark and I'm really trying to deal with people who have absolutely lost love and cannot get out of that. Mm. Like I totally get that they cannot get their enthusiasm for love back, you know, because they've been crushed by it and that's the the great gift of love is then the great risk of it all is that, you know, you get something as powerful as love and then you're going to risk losing it. And, and the pain of that. Yeah, so but what I try and say, though, when it, it's hard to get your enthusiasm, just start small, you know, mm. and start very small. Like look at an ant. I know this sounds dorky, but I swear to God, just study an ant for two minutes, you know, like literally a black ant on the ground going about its business and then look where it's heading and then realise that 
yeah, okay, we're pretty small too. And and then slowly build your enthusiasms up. And then maybe you just got one person, you know, maybe if you're lucky, you're one of those people who've got like 40 people who mm. love them and, you know, turn to that enthusiastic sort of connection you have with someone. But I don't know. I The older I get, the more um, aware I am that it's okay to jump in the river. Like I'm not, I would never frigging judge, you know, and, mm. I, and it, like I think I, you know, I got really bummed when Kurt Cobain died, right? And I remember just being so judgmental when I was like, you know, 15. Just like, what the f- what's your problem, Kurt yeah. Cobain? You know, like, yeah, it's like. I needed you. I needed you. Like it almost it was feels all, personal, so, right? It was all me. That's right. That's so mm. right. And it was like how thoughtless, like how yeah. thoughtless. It was, yeah, I made it all about, yeah. Damn it, man. <laughs> Damn it. How could you do I needed your music. Yeah. It's like, fuck, man, that guy yeah. was going through some heavy yeah. shit, man. I'm not ever going to judge that guy for jumping in the river. No, but I think you you highlight the point that the gritty and the magical live together we, and they don't necessarily, they're not one or the other and you weave them in through the book. So let's talk a bit more. We've touched on Lola in the Mirror. It's extraordinary. I finished it this morning and I have to apologise to my kids and my husband because I have done no work and they have been given lunch money for the last few days while I read this book because it is amazing. I heard this great statement the other day that just said, life gets better when we double our question to judgment ratio, when we ask more questions and judge less. What were the questions you were asking as you started to write this book? Oh, Ali, I love that. I love that. Yeah. And and it's and it's the questions it, it ties back into will this moment be my making or will it be my destruction? Does the past determine my future? Am I more than my blood? And and who the biggest <laughs> What did you say? Who am I? What the hell? I was literally gonna just say I was who am I? Mm. The, the greatest question we can ever ask ourselves, and which is why the mirror is such a deeply personal thing. Okay, every day, right, it's the funniest thing. I've done it myself so many times where, like, you're looking in the mirror and you're whatever, I'm trying to sort of make some sense of this mess of a hair, I ha- head of hair I have, and, and I'm there looking at myself and I'm tapping into some moment of absolute deep profundity and then bang I'm off. You know what I mean? It's so ridiculous that we humans, you know, we will stare in the mirror, whatever. Some people do it for a couple of seconds. Some people might do it for a couple of minutes, but we're close to something deep, right? We're going like, Mm. how did that person get here? Like you're literally, this person's staring back at them. And it's this version of you staring back at you, asking these sometimes deep, you know, maybe no one does, I don't know, but I think a few of us do, and it's that incredibly quiet intimacy, incredibly quiet, profound intimacy of of just you and yourself. And you are. You, you, you cannot help but ask. I know whether you ask it sort of, you know, outwardly or anything, somewhere in the back of your head mm, you're still asking that, who am I? Question, it's the biggest question. It? Like, yeah. Who am I? Who do I want to be? Who do I regret becoming? And it's when your past and your present and your future meet all in the same face. And it's like that's a very profound sort of moment. I I'm, was really interested in that because these are just the questions I've asked myself forever. So, you know, this beautiful dad of mine like, had these demons, right, and I would need to preface he's the most beautiful dad like in the world and he was the perfect dad for the Dalton boys, you know, incredibly <laughs> you know, troubled and just Leonard Cohen-like in his depth and just angst and, you know, should have sung for the Rolling Stones but the job was taken. But constantly I'd go like, I'm so much of that guy to the point, man, I'm starting to look like him. I'm starting to look like him, Ali, at 44, right? And I'm like, 
okay, so am am I am I, like how much of him is in me? And you know, I, I love booze just as much as that guy loved booze. So does that mean booze is going to define my life a little bit the way it defined Dad's life? And and what do I need to do to not let that happen? And and like all of that shit goes pretty deep. We're, and we're all asking ourselves those questions sometimes in the mirror. If you have any self-awareness at all. I think there are some people, maybe those lucky bastards who just go into the mirror and don't ask themselves <laughs> a single question. Good for them. But I think anyone of any depth and self-awareness is asking some pretty profound questions sometimes. And it's so hilarious that we just give it a couple of minutes or a couple of seconds and then we're off. Better get the kids to school. Yeah. Better uh, just do the shit that i got to do to get through life with some grace and good fortune and get back and then, okay, then you go to bed and brush your teeth and you have that last final little existential moment and then off to bed. You know, it's sort of like what if you stayed there for a bit and just thought about what was going on there and and just thought about this idea that what if you are only now? What if who you are is only right now and forwards? And that is the stuff that I started to get excited about. And, and what if there was a girl who, who decided to not accept the story that was being told for her, mm. you know, and I, I really like that. I really like that, that, that she's trying to uncover this mystery, which is her life, this character in Lola in the mirror. And the whole unfolding mystery is her slowly realising who she is according to others when internally she's thinking she's someone entirely different and who will she choose to be? And it's like that that starts to get really profound. And, you know, I really hope there's some messages in there for young readers in particular to go, um, it's you who decides who that person in the mirror is. Mm. Nobody else but you. So don't let any single person decide and don't have any voice in your head when you're asking those questions of who am I other than you. And don't be afraid to tell that person in the mirror who he or she really is. It's this beautiful paradox of... We don't know and yet we've always known that a name doesn't matter and yet it matters hugely. (laughs) We don't know and yet we've always – that's so true. Mm. That's so true. And those rare moments where you feel like you have landed upon your true self and I think I get my true self maybe, I don't know, man, like 10% of the time. Like I think 90% I'm this collage of versions of myself and and just every now and then, man, like like my daughter's – Oh, it was Father's Day. My daughters wrote me this thing, Ali, I'm telling you. And and it's like it was the most beautiful summation of, of how they see who I am. And I was like, all right, if I can be that guy, mm-hmm. if I can be that guy, like 90% of the time I'd be an incredibly happy individual. Yeah. And having that future, like you, the main character in this book continues from the very early stages of this potential future through an imagination, through an ambition that she keeps kind of driving towards. And I think where we talked before around not judging those that might, and we we use the term jump into the river and those that read the book will understand what that means. Mm. But it's when that future, we can't see it, is no longer there that that starts to shift and change. But the importance and those statements, right, that beautiful letter from your daughter is a a future to live into, to step into. (laughs) Ali, that's right. That's it. That's that's almost her. She's acknowledging the past, right? Like, yeah, right. I mean, I could really analyse that beautiful mm. card that she's acknowledging the past, but she's going, hey, man, you should be this guy for a bit. She's like, keep being that guy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? She's almost mm-hmm. giving me the, yeah, like a future version as well. Like, yeah. you're right. You're right. And that's like really beautiful. And it's like, 
And sometimes, because when I'm looking in the mirror, I'm just absolutely chronically filled with self-doubt and all this terrible shit like, oh, you didn't get back to that message three days ago, so you must be a complete asshole. Yeah. That's who you are. Like, that's who you are, right? You're that guy. And it's like, that shouldn't really define me entirely, but it's just it's sort of sometimes you hook on to the wrong version and... Yeah, and you can't see these other versions, you yeah. know, and, and yeah, because that's sort choice. of what I'm getting at, you know, mm, that's it. The yeah. choice to come back to it. This book, the backdrop of it is Brisbane um, yeah, and yeah. The, the brown snake, the Brisbane yeah, River. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Everything sort of happens on the banks of this yeah, river and the river yeah. tells its own story. What is it about having Brisbane as the backdrop of this story in particular that yeah. you were able to maybe paint on that would have been different if it had been set somewhere yeah, else? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's it's my industrial London that Dickens had. You know what I mean? It's like I, I do believe it's our role as writers to write about the world outside my front door and the world outside my very fortunate house, you know, and and I just had this all this information that had come from my years of genuinely walking the streets of Brisbane. Like I part of my role on any paper has been a guy would an editor would tap me on the shoulder and go, Dalton, can you go out and get us a story? Just go out and physically return with a story, make something from nothing. And that would often be the case of just going, tapping someone on the shoulder and going, hey, can I just sit and talk to you for an hour? And would you tell me about why you're doing this thing that I'm seeing with my own eyes? And that's an incredibly powerful thing. And then doing the door knocking thing. I did a whole story once, a story of a street, Sunny Avenue in Wavell Heights, and just knocking on a door and do a story of six houses in that street and how all these people interact and make it profound and how we're looking at life through the eyes of of six homeowners in in a street or renters or whatever. It's like, that's my favourite type of journalism. And uh, all of that stuff is is in this book. So there's 23 years of walking the streets of Brisbane. It would be just ridiculous for me to set that in any other place or, or some fictional city or because this city is absolutely in my DNA, you know, and and, you know, mate, like, I mean, this city saved my family. Like, like it was, you know, my mum would go to DV shelters that are in this book, mm-hmm. you know, and I covered versions of homeless shelters that are in this book and all of the people that our hero, our nameless hero falls in with and who become her family, her sort of replacement family for the family that she's run away from, they're all inspired by people I've interviewed before. There was a woman who had a sugar addiction, Rosalind. There's there's a bloke who lost his eye in, in an army accident. Uh, that's the basis of Serge, the character Serge. Mm. They're all there. Um, Charlie, this beautiful best friend of hers, that's just like people I love. That's like mm. my best friends. And, you know, so they're all these people, these Brisbane people. And then, you know, love stories became... The great thing about love stories is that that was just the research project. Like this is a fictional sequel to love stories. Like this is one big love story that all those 200 people who told me love stories fed into this one great sweeping young kind of Romeo and Juliet type cross the tracks, wrong side of the tracks, girl meets boy type love story at its heart. And it's like that all came from that. The best story in love stories was this story of Moana, who's this girl I met. She's a stop-go lady and she she was having a cigarette by the river on the very spot where all of the important stuff happens in Lola in the Mirror. That's where I met Moana in, in love stories. And she said, I will tell you a love story and the mm. time it takes for me to smoke this Winfield Blue. I'm like, hell yeah. She starts to tell me a story about how that river that brown snake that you're talking about saved her life. You know, she comes from New Zealand escaping some DV, some pretty personal stuff, literally escaping and trying to start again. 
and she turns up in Brisbane on the day of the Great Flood, January 2011, and the whole city's in flood. Like, it's everything's gone chaos. And then three days later, she joins the Mud Army and she watches the city of Brisbane repair itself just as she's repairing herself. Mm. And, and so she goes, this this river saved me. It was this river that, that showed me all of that about how to heal myself. So she goes down to have that smoke by the river and think about that. I was like, oh, that'll do me. That's perfect. That's pretty good. It's pretty good, right? And <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that's where I'll set my book. And all everything starts from that spot. So it's sort of... But also trying to look at this city from like one end of the city to the other, literally from like, you know, the top of, you know, basically Central Station all the way to West End. And can you look at that and and write about it as magically as someone might write about Paris or the way someone might write about New York and put a young woman in, in that world and capture everything I know about, every detail I know about that city and feed it into the book and let all those small little details be the magic, you know. And, um, yeah. It truly is the magic. One of the, one of the things you refer to a couple of times throughout the book, and it's only just sitting here because the the incredible love story that's within it's almost centered within the middle of the book. Yeah, like it does, it's, it's it does. kind of yeah, sits well right, said, yeah. right there in the center. And you know, art is is very much the backbone yeah. of this, and sketching yeah. and drawing, and yeah, the yeah. New York Met Art Gallery, and yes, all yeah. of that is very much a part mm. of it. And there's mm. a piece where the main character, you know turns to sketch on a blank piece of paper, which yeah. feels like the whole world. And oh, you, yeah, yeah. you have this kind of statement that you can't draw light on a white piece of paper without drawing the darkness. Oh, and Ali, it's my favourite line. That could well be my favourite line in the book, yeah. And, mm. and you know, even as, you know, even that light of the love story in the middle of the book mm. is surrounded mm. by this darkness mm. at the start and mm. towards the end without kind of giving <laughs> it away. But And as you, you know, even talk about between Central and, and West End, there is light and darkness in both. Yeah. What meaning can we give to the darkness when we can oh, focus on the light? Man, like that, that's, and, and the truth of a sketch is, is that the darker you make your ink, the brighter the light. It's just mm-hmm. it's so powerful. Like that's just, the, that's the story of my life, Ali. Like that's just, you know, I truly believe like there was a sort of period of from about eight to about, 18 for me was just shit. Like it was just, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not trying, trying to play some small violin or anything. I'm just like, it was pretty miserable. Like it was just like, I just wasn't really into life at all. Mm. And, uh, and that period. So I talk about those places looking like Camelot to me because no, no, that was everything. Like that was just everything. And so, so that makes 20 to 44 just shine so bright. It just makes it all shine so bright. And it's the thing I just try and tell everyone is just like, do not see all of that darkness, you know, hang in there long enough to make the light shine bright for you, like if you can, you know, and it's just like that is so powerful. Like it's like if you have to suffer all that darkness, please hang in there long enough for it to to make the light shine bright. And it's like that's what this girl keeps going back to. And, you know, it's no – coincidence then that I fill these stories and my wife says all the time it's like man do you have to make them go through so much you know <laughs> it's like I'm sorry I'm but I'm just trying to make the light shine brighter that's all I'm trying to do in a storytelling sense and and she finds her light through through art and and it's like that's so true it's like I I found my light through my version of I could never sketch I could could not ever write a tune I could not you know all I could do was string a couple of sentences together and that was my access to light and it's like yeah I just think I just think we all have to find the place where we find our light you know and and, but I just like yeah I just love that notion of you literally cannot 
draw light. You cannot mm. draw it. Like it's just if you're going to capture light properly, you have to be familiar with the darkness and, and know what darkness looks like. The other thing she talks about is the honesty of art and, and almost mm. this question of I didn't know we could be that honest. <gasps> oh, in she sees that Picasso painting mm. and he's like, yeah, it's his dear friend with like a, a bullet through his forehead and it's like she's just had this moment like she's like, mum, can, can we do that? Can we, can we? It's like, yeah, I love that too. I love that. Thanks mm. for noting that. Like it's me just going. You know, that's me also. Yeah, it's just What's going, your creative process like? We talk about your art in, in writing yeah, words. Yeah, well, it is that. It's it's thinking of can I go to the darkest thought I have in my brain and could I be so bold as to put that in a book, you know, and, and that you do question that. But then you got to think, well, yeah, there are people who did that on a way bigger scale than you, like Picasso who just went, I am totally going to paint what it was like to see my best friend with a bullet in his head, you know, and it's like, oh, wow, okay, that's freaking deep. And the world celebrated that, you know, so it's like never underestimate what the world is capable of consuming because we are dark beings, like we are up for it, you know what I mean? We are dark, complex human beings and, you know, I make these really terrible assumptions about people sometimes, particularly with Boy Swallows Universe. I, I, and I said it, I've sort of said it to people and it's kind of insulting. I'll say something like, oh, I don't know if that book's for you, you know, because I've made some sort of judgment about what that person can handle. Yeah, right. And it's like every time I've been wrong and they're like, I'm really hurt that you thought I couldn't take that, you know, and it's like it's a really good thing to remember. Like never underestimate what someone's been through. Just because they're wearing a certain thing or they wear their makeup a certain way or some bullshit that I'm bringing to it, forget all that. People are really ready for it and they want to learn about that. Was the great lesson of Boy Swallows Universe that was so beautiful. And you only got that from talking to people like yourself, Ali, is like people go, or you're at some some event and they will come up and, you know, I said it before, but it's like they will come up and go, thank you for writing about me. Thank you for writing about my mum. Thank you for writing about my brother because this is my world. Even though I'm this now, I'm this version of myself, Mm. you're writing about my 14-year-old version of myself and 64-year-old me still very much cares about 14-year-old me. So thank you. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. That's really cool. Yeah, Yeah, the honesty that I can – the truth that sits behind that honesty is okay. Totally, totally. It's okay to sit in that. I think another theme that you bring into your writing is this untapped potential, that this, which is the future, right? The potential of me, where else I can step into. Yep. What would you, again, if you were that 75-year-old version of yourself Mm. that stepped into the potential that is in front of you, what do you think that 75-year-old version is going to be proud of? Oh, wow. Wow, I love that. I really love that. I, I think he'll be shaking his head at 44-year-old me. Like, like he'll go, that was wild. That was a real wild little brief period yeah. in your life, Trent, wasn't it? You know, like I think that. I, I look forward to that time when I look back and go, my wife and I say it sometimes. We're very conscious of, of gratitude. Like we're, we're really big on it in our house and – my girls are lucky, Ali. Like they're really mm. lucky and they don't want for much, you know, and, and that's only because of, you know, to be honest, it's only really because of shit that, you know, mum went through and, and my old man and, you know, things that I turned into this book that it's weird. It's weird what happened because of that book and because of the past for us. Like it meant that right now my daughters can go to a good school because of that book, you know. Mm. It's so strange to me to sort of think about those things. So I'd always try and tell them. Like I tell them everything now. Like they're old enough now to hear every story, every gritty thing because I want to know the blo- – I want them to know. I don't want them to be defined by the blood that's in them but I want them to know they got some of their 
grandma's strength, mate. Mm. Like they got that in them, you know. They they got that woman who survived the frigging 1980s. That's, you know, they're a part, she's a part of them and so that's all really cool. And anyway, so I'm going off track though, but that 75-year-old guy though, the thing, the thing I get very emotional about looking back on is that 75-year-old guy like I do. I, I, the 44-year-old version of me is, is quite complex and still trying to navigate a whole bunch of stuff and like still a bit unsure about whether he's got everything right. But I think 75-year-old me will look like I do now, he'll look back on 12-year-old me and mm. that kid's, I like that kid. Like I really care for that kid and and that kid was pure and I swear, Ali, like he just didn't intentionally do anything to anyone to hurt anyone and, and he just watched and learned a lot of cool stuff, you know, mm. and and I just think, sorry, I'm getting I'm getting emotional because I just I really care for that kid and I know the shit he's going through. And I think seventy five year old me will really enjoy being at peace and going, hey, man, well done, mate. You held on and you turned it into something beautiful. Mm. You turned it into into a life. You know, and if that 75-year-old guy's got a grandkid on his lap, you know, <laughs> called Eli, um, he'll be uh, he'll be very <laughs> proud. <laughs> no. Yeah. What a life. What yeah. a life. I'll ask you, not quite a deep question, but it might be. It's really exciting that Boy Swallows University is going to become a Netflix oh, series man. and Brackenridge will be seen by 150 different countries and it's extraordinary. Oh, yeah, you yeah. mentioned before Kurt Cobain. I know you've got an absolute love for music. Yeah, yeah. Do you get a say in the soundtrack at all? Oh, that's that such a great series? question. No, they... They asked me and they like, they're like, Trent, any suggestions? So I sent them um, Caitlin Spies' tape deck. So Caitlin Spies in that book is absolutely my wife, Fiona. Like it's no doubt about mm-hmm. it. So Eli Bell f- falls in love with this kind of little bit older journo that he meets at his first newspaper. Well, that's exactly what I did. But she's cool, right? And he has got way cooler musical taste than me. And so I sent them this whole thing. It's like, guys, if you really want to know the music that they're all listening to, this is Caitlin Spies' tape deck. And and what it is, what I suggested is it's 1980s Australian music. It's like in excess before the kick album. So it's sort of like mm. it's like listen like thieves era in excess. Like it's sort of like back when, before like in excess were like mega famous. And it's sort of like um and it's bands like the models even before they were famous and bands like the Sunny Boys and uh and the Saints and uh but also with a little bit of early cure thrown in as well. Nice. And then um so it's sort of like all of this music, they were all my suggestions, right? But here's the cool thing. I, I've actually watched like the first three episodes of the show. And Ali, it's, okay, I have to measure my thoughts because of course I would say it's all cool and everything. But it's like, I'm telling you, if you were alive in Australia in the mid 80s, you will have never felt more seen. Like it is in Australia, there is a light that they have captured at 5 p.m. in the suburbs that every one of us in this beautiful country will go, yes, that's what <laughs> I it was, was there. like. I was there. Awesome. There's Ataris, there's, there's everything, the ice blocks, the, the things that are happening, the, the ashtrays, the stubby coolers. It is, it is bizarrely note perfect, but particularly the song. So, like, I'm throwing them all these sort of really kind of alternative sort of Australian stuff and then I go, I see an episode and they've got that song by like Men at Work, right? The kid, Eli Bell's writing, sort of basically helping his stepdad on drug deals and stuff and it's like he probably shouldn't be doing this. And then in the background, he's riding his bike through the suburbs and they're playing um, Be Good, Be Good, Be Good, Be Good, Be Good, Be Good and my wife, we just lost our shit. You know, it's just like, okay, that'll do for the sound. You know, and it's just that type of song and I'm yeah. like, that's the stuff. And it's like there are songs in this. Oh, they they open with like there's a moment I heard like um unguarded moment by the church. 
And so, you know, I play that song relentlessly. Like, and, and it's like to see that connected to a story that comes straight from my heart and soul, Ali, to the point where it's like, oh, I, I think I was put on this planet to write that story. Mm. And to have that beautiful Australian music associated with that story, it's been the greatest treasure. Yeah. Must feel surreal. Oh, it's, the whole journey was the most surreal thing. Like they invited me to set and this amazing art director, Michelle McGay, she's, I love her so much and she called me up and she's like, she was the art director on The Matrix. Like she's like, she is a weapon and she calls up and she goes, um, Trent, you got to drive me around Brisbane. I, I want to I wanna see Brackenridge. I want to see Dara. I want to see the house you grew up in. And she saw it all. Like we went there. I want to yep. see Boggo Road Prison. I want to... And she did her job so well, Ali, that I, I came to the set and they had recreated our childhood home, like to minute detail. And I walked up through this sort of up onto this porch, opened the door. There was this beautiful, beautiful young actor named Felix Cameron playing Eli Bell. He's dressed in the same sky blue uniform that I wore as a kid. And I just started crying. I walked up to the kid and hugged him and, mm-hmm. and I got weird. I said, um, are, you, are you good? Are you okay? Like, it was so freaking weird. It was so heavy. Like it was so heavy because it was just the kid was a bag of bones exactly like I yeah. was. Like he was just like this beautiful, fragile 12-year-old boy. And I was just like, holy shit. And everyone was going, oh, Trent, this must be the most amazing day of your life. And I'm going, yeah, this is unbelievable. And then I turned to Fiona and I went, I need to go. Like this I, is I weird. need, to, I need yeah. to get out of here. It was too too much. It was so strange. Yeah, yeah it would have been confronting for sure. Yeah. This book is coming out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously, we're going to put all the links where people can oh, can uh, access yeah. it and, and read it and listen to it. What do you hope that readers feel from reading this book? Compassion. Oh. Compassion. I, I, I think I think we solve these issues of 128,000 people sleeping, sleeping rough tonight through compassion. Go as hard as you can in life and become as successful as you can. And if you become part of the absolute filthy, stinking rich, please remember your compassion. You know, and, and it's like that's all I'm trying to say and I hate to ever, I will never beat someone over the head with some social issue that I feel but but I feel that compassion is important and every character in this is, a, is trying to kind of some of the ones who the worst people in the book are people who have forgotten their compassion and the best people in the book are the people who are absolutely intrinsically linked to compassion and I think the best, mo- you know, you said you read the last but I love the last page of the book for that reason. It's a moment of shared understanding that comes from the purity of a kid. And I think kids, um, you know, see the world just so beautifully and, you know, I so I hope people might read it and get back to the stuff. I think the most wise person in the book is like a three-year-old girl in the book because she's just pure and kind of not not by saying anything in particular but just being and, you know, and sort of, yeah, I just think there's so much in that about remembering like who we were before we went on the road, you know, before we went on the big journey to the top of the tower and so it's sort of what the book's trying to say is yeah it's a beautiful world and we've got these great things in this city of ours and uh but there are some invisible things that we all should try our best to see this book is gritty it's magical it's the invisible it's love it's the possibility and potential but it also has the meaning of life in there a couple of times as well so it's it's a really uh beautiful book i've adored this conversation and i've probably got three three more hours of conversation in me but ali i've loved it like i've i've had wet eyes for the past 40 minutes you know (laughs) Honestly, I'm going to go dry my uh, eyes in my car quietly and, and reflect and go, thank you, Ali. That was really sweet. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, but I honestly, I, it's like I love it. I love it. Anyone who can get me um, tapping into my, um, yeah, just the, the, I believe it's all about 
talking and crying. That's all life should be. Just talking and crying. I'm up for that. <laughs> I'm up for that. I'll come to my final question. The oh, na- great. Yeah, name yeah. of this podcast is called Standout Life. Oh, wow. When you yeah. hear that term, what does that mean to you to live a standout life? Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's, it's the people who have realised that they are the author of their own story and it's to lead a standout life you are actively writing your story as you live it. Like that's a theme in the book. I haven't even talked about it. The girl in the book at certain junctures in her life is choosing to do A, the daring thing, the romantic thing, because she's wondering what it will look like 100 years from now. And it's like she's trying to lead a standout life. She's trying to lead a life that people are going to be very impressed by in 100 years from now. And that is such a cool way to live your life. It's like so she actively will be in a certain spot and she's like, okay, I could walk to this spot, but what if I decided to cartwheel and what would happen? And it's like that's just a minor example, but okay, I'm I'm with this boy right now. I could say something to him, but what if I waited and what if I, instead of saying something, what if I just kissed him or what? That's how she's mm. sort of thinking and it's like, yeah, she's actively stopping at certain points to actively write her own story and, yeah, just I say that to people all the time. It's like just don't don't let the world write your story like, you be the person writing it and, and actively live inside it like it is a rollicking yarn, you know, and, you know, because if you do think about your life that way, it suddenly gets really exciting. It suddenly gets – it's like where are you going to go next? Well, you decide, you know. It's like um, what's on the next page and it's like keep writing it. Make that freaking story the best yarn ever. Yeah. So, yeah, that to me is like, you know, what I consider a standout life is, is someone who's, who's decided to write their own story. I'll keep writing. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks so much, Trent. This is the best. Thanks for your time, Thank Ali. You. Yeah. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then let's keep the conversation going. The main place that I hang out is on Instagram at Ali Hill, A-L-I-H-I-L-L. One of the ways you can continue to support me and the team behind the podcast is if you could take two minutes just to rate and review Standout Life Podcast on whatever platform you are listening to. You can also subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when new episodes come out. And if this conversation is one that you know that someone in your world would get huge amount of value out of, then please share it with them or maybe share it on your socials. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in for your ongoing support and for joining me in exploring what does it really take. As always, this is Standout Life Podcast and I'm Ali Hill.